All right, good morning, church. Good to see you all. We're going to study God's word together. So if you would open your Bible to Psalm chapter 44. And while you're turning, let me just say welcome to those of you who are here in the room uh, visiting with us this morning, guests on live stream. It's a joy to have you with us as we study God's word. We're going to be wrapping up this Psalm series, um, bringing our emotions to God uh, as of next week. So hopefully, Lord willing, we'll finish. Uh, uh, kind of on the note that the Psalms finish on. Doesn't mean that we're gonna finish with Psalm 150, but the the Psalms are moving in a linear direction and it's moving toward praise. So I hope that that's gonna be kind of our emphasis on the way out of this series. But this morning, Psalm 44 is a a dark day. It is a a believer in the midst of pain and struggle. And so I hope that the message this morning speaks to you if that's the season that you're in or prepares us to step into that season with other friends, brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can do that intelligently and, and with grace. So Psalm 44 I'm going to read this to us and then uh, we'll dive in and, and get to work. The psalmist writes, God, we have heard with our ears, our ancestors have told us the work you accomplished in their days, in days long ago. In order to plant them, you displaced the nations by your hand. In order to settle them, you brought disaster on the peoples. For they did not take the land by their sword, and their arm did not bring them victory, but by your right hand, your arm, and the light of your face, because you were favorable toward them. You are my king, my God, who ordains victories for Jacob. Through you, we drive back our foes. Through your name, we trample our enemies. For I do not trust in my bow, and my sword does not bring me victory but you give us victory over our foes and let those who hate us be disgraced. We boast in God all day long. We will praise your name forever. But you have rejected and humiliated us. You do not march out with our armies. You make us retreat from the foe and those who hate us have taken plunder for themselves. You hand us over to be eaten like sheep and scatter us among the nations. You sell your people for nothing. You make no profit from selling them. You make us an object of reproach to our neighbors, a source of mockery and ridicule to those around us. You make us a joke among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. My disgrace is before me all day long and shame has covered my face because of the taunts of the scorner and reviler because of the enemy and avenger. All this has happened to us, but we have not forgotten you or betrayed your covenant. Our hearts have not turned back. Our steps have not strayed from your path, but you have crushed us in a haunt of jackals and have covered us with deep darkness. If we had forgotten the name of our God and spread out our hands to a foreign God, wouldn't God have found this out since he knows the secrets of the heart? Because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Wake up, Lord. Why are you sleeping? Get up, don't reject us forever. Why do you hide and forget our affliction and oppression for we have sunk down to the dust and our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up, help us, redeem us because of your faithful love. I'm reading a book right now about common lies that Christians believe. 
And lie number one in the very first chapter is God won't give me more than I can handle. Uh, which is appropriate for the psalm that we're in right now because Psalm 44, as the psalmist is expressing in writing, it sounds like he has more than he can handle. It doesn't sound like he's keeping his head above water, right? The idea there behind that statement, God won't give you more than you can handle, I think the idea is, is basically, basically this. If you have faith in the Lord, you, you might have pain in your life, but the pain won't be extremely intense pain. You might have sad days, but you'll never be clinically depressed, right? You, you might have really hard seasons of life, but you'll never come to a place of throwing in the towel and actually just quitting on it, right? Well, in the Psalms we have, we've, we've said this all along, this kind of cadence of speech, is that God gives us a language for every season of the soul, including days where you, you look up Maybe you've experienced this, maybe this is today, where you look up and your faith is in shambles and you can't even fully account for how you got here. You ever experienced that before? I don't know how I ended up in this exact spot, but here I am and my faith is threadbare faith. What can you say to God when that is the moment that you're living in and God says, I'll give you a gift. It's language to speak in a moment like that in the deepest, deepest Darkness. So our passage opens up, I think, in three movements. And the first is this, the creed of faith. The creed of faith. So you notice there, right in the first few verses, our passage begins with praise, right? It's praise for God's faithful presence all along through the history of his dealings with his people Israel. So verse two refers to the time when God settled them in their land. That's, that's the people marching into the promised land. It's dripping with milk and honey. God has provided it for them. They're fresh off the, the wilderness, right, where God fed the manna in the desert. And before that, God set them free from Egypt and the walls stood up like, uh, the water stood up like walls and they pass through on dry land, right? So God has done awesome things leading them up to this moment. And then he says, I wanna give you, now I wanna give you land. I wanna give you security. I wanna make you mine. I want you to live in peace under my rule and under my blessing. And, and you see in the text that the language that's used there isn't language of self-assertion of God's people you know, pulling their act together. It's we're here in this place because of, you see it, your right hand your right arm and the light of your face. That's what led us here. So it's saying basically this, Lord, you worked in the lives of our ancestors. That's the big idea of the first couple of verses. You worked in the lives of our ancestors. Let me just stop here and just think about this for our own lives and, and our church, right? So the generation that's coming behind us, they need to hear mom and dad they need to hear their believing grandparents telling them the stories of the faith, telling them, reading them the Bible, telling them about Abraham and Moses and Esther and Abigail, right, and, and Ruth and all these stories that are a part of the rich history of God's dealings with his people. But not only do we need to steep them in the glorious stories of the covenant in the Bible, but you need to tell them your story, 
what God has done in your life, this is faithfully bringing this text into the modern era, is you telling them your story. I can't tell you how many hundreds of ways my parents, my grandparents, my papa and mama, my faith trainers and Sunday school teachers, they sat us down in 100 different contexts, in 100 different ways, and they said, Matt, we were weak, but God was strong. And we were sinful, but he was merciful. And we were foolish, but he was faithful. Sit down, let me tell you a story. And they take you to the year and they walk you down memory lane and they say, look how God showed up in our lives and he's so faithful to us, right? And why do they do that? Why are we called to do that? We're called to do that in the hopes that they catch it that it becomes theirs, that it's not just, yeah, the stories of mom and dad, the stories of grandma and grandpa and what God did for them. The hope is that as we tell them those stories, they become their own stories, right? So they start using the language of personal experience of God's faithfulness. So it moves from you've worked in the lives of our ancestors to you've worked in our own lives. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we pray for the next generation? That they would say, you see how the pronouns change in verse four? It's talking about what they were doing in verse one to three. Verse four, you are my king, my God, who ordains victories for Jacob. Through you, we drive back our foes. Through your name, we trample our enemies. For I do not trust in my bow, and my sword does not bring me victory. That, you see the dynamic of faith transferred from one generation to another, from verse one to three to verse four to six. You know, um, one of my favorite songs in our little church growing up was a song called Look What the Lord Has Done. And I loved this song because it was, it was fun and it was upbeat and it was energetic and the people would clap and they'd sing extra loud, right? And it was just this clap on two and four, you know, it's just really hopping song. And, and we'd sing it over and over and over. It was extremely repetitive. And then you'd change keys and you'd sing it a few more times, right? Um, but, but here's the thing is the, the older I got, the more I could write in my own journal in college and say, look what the Lord has done for me. Now I have stories of God's faithful presence and his provision and his comfort and his power to change me. I've got stories I can tell of God's work in my own life. So Psalm 44, the interesting thing about the first few verses is, if you stop in verse eight, it sounds like a rousing rendition of look what the Lord has done. The people clapping on two and four and really going to town, right? It sounds like that if you stop before verse nine. But in verse nine, we move from the creed of faith to the contradiction of faith. The contradiction of faith. And we could see this in a number of ways in the text, but just look at verse seven and verse 10. Just put those next to each other, right? Verse seven you give us victory over our foes. Verse 10, you make us retreat from the foe. So which one is it? You, you sense the, the cognitive dissonance that the psalmist is, the, the confusion, the befuddlement that we have sung this song, look what the Lord has done for ages, and yet we went out and you didn't march out with us. We went out into battle, we turned around and you had gone AWOL. We're trying to account for this. You make us retreat from the foe. Where did that show up in our history, right? There's a, um, an Icelandic uh, composer and musician and producer named Olafur Arnolds, and 
He created a project called the Chopin Project a few years back. I think it's a really interesting project because he takes the beautiful genius music of Chopin and he says, you know, I'm tired of listening to Chopin and everything is completely, um, all of the ambient sound is taken out. The piano is perfectly in tune. He says, it's not real to actual life. It's like technically you process out all the things about normal life. So he says on his website, this was his approach. He asked the question, why would a good classical piano sound naturally? Why would it have to be the silvery, brilliant concert grand sound that we have on every classical recording? Why do we want technology to process out all the sounds of the performer himself, herself, and all the sounds of the room? And so as you listen to this project, you hear the ambient sounds of the space around the performers. You hear the rise and fall and the squeak of the sustain pedal under the foot of the pianist. You hear the pianist inhale and exhale in some of the quiet moments. You can hear the performers actually breathing you can hear the kind of distant sound of chatter far away, nearby people who are watching the performance unfold, and you can hear them chattering or, or laughing out in the distance. And, and I think Psalm 44 has, it doesn't technically process out, process out all of the ambient sound. It lets the ambient sound come through, and what's the ambient sound? It's, it's laughter, it's distant chatter, but it's the laughter of their enemies. You see verse 14. You make us a joke among the nations. You know, this is a song that's being sung and you can hear the nations laughing in the distance. Verse 16 speaks of the taunts of the scorner and the reviler. Christian friend, I wonder if you've ever asked this question, Lord, where were you this week? You know, it's not just Psalm 44 that frees us to ask hard questions like that. There are multiple Psalms. The lament genre is the dominant genre of Psalms and there are many times where the believer, the, the follower says things like, Lord, where were you this week? The Psalm gives you language in the midst of the bewilderment. Before you're out, before you're in the clear, it gives you something to say in the season of soul that feels like total darkness, that feels like God was a complete no-show. I'm aware of a story of an American missionary who moved his family to San Jose, Costa Rica, and, and he began doing tent revivals in the middle of the 20th century and sharing the gospel far and wide and people were coming to faith and people were being healed sometimes and, and, and then a church was planted and the church was thriving and good things were happening there and one day, his wife was supposed to meet him and a friend at their favorite restaurant at the base of a mountain there in San Jose. And he said, babe, I'll just, I'll meet you there. I'm gonna grab him after church and we'll go meet you there. And, uh, and she never showed. And so much time passed that he got concerned. And he said, can you just wait here? I'm just gonna drive in my car. It's not very far to go back to the church. And he drives up and over that mountain. And as his way, he moves his way up and over the mountain, he sees that the railing was missing. And he looks over and he sees that his wife had accidentally driven over the mountain and that she had been ejected from her vehicle and she, he just saw her just broken against the mountain. And he shuffled down the side and he held her together, really. And he cried out into heaven and he said, I'm done. This is what you do? 
to those who give their lives to serve you and to proclaim your gospel? Where were you? Why didn't you show up? And I know the story well because years later, Ed Bilderback met and married a woman who had lost her husband and that woman was my mom. And he would, in later years, he would again proclaim the faithfulness that he said he would never proclaim again. But for a minute, he was caught between verse eight and verse nine. He was caught between the creed and the contradiction, between look what the Lord has done and Lord, where were you? Commentator Dale Ralph Davis, he uh, speaks of Bible translation efforts that were going on among a particular people group. And in that people group, they had an adage, they had a, a saying that translates into English, he heard his two ears. That's how they would describe a person in a certain situation. He heard his two ears. And so one ear was telling him one thing and the other ear was telling him something else and the person didn't know which ear to believe. He heard his two ears kind of locked in this moment, right? So I think that's kind of Psalm 44. He's hearing his two ears. One ear is telling him God is a God who rescues and the other ear is telling him the wreck that is his life and he doesn't know which one to believe. He's hearing his two ears. You think about this in the context of our fellowship as believers and brothers and sisters in Christ. If somebody prays within this, the hearing of you, you're, you're there and you overhear them praying and, and they sound like Psalm 44 and you cut them off and you, you ask them to engage in this kind of faith speak, you're asking them to do something God isn't asking them to do in Psalm 44. So I chose this psalm because it was about the hardest one I could find apart from Psalm 88, which I already preached a couple years ago. And I was trying to find some of the hardest psalms so that we could look each other in the face and say, he gives us language for every season of the soul, including the darkest ones. And the reason I think this psalm is particularly dark, I was almost gonna settle on another one, but I I thought this one was a little bit darker because of verse 17. So here's all this pain and heartache, and verse 17 says, all this happened to us, but we haven't forgotten you. Verse 20, if we had forgotten the name of our God, we'd understand this but our faces have been turned toward you, right? So he's saying, wouldn't God have known if our hearts were away from you and bowing toward idols? So that, that puts an extra pang in it, doesn't it? The, the psalmist is not saying we've been sinlessly perfect. He's saying our face has been toward you. I know that hasn't always been the case in our history, so we've experienced discipline. That's understandable. Why this one? In recent history, we've been turned toward you and yet we went out and you didn't march out with us. How do we process this? Well, well, some of these words in this psalm might sound familiar. You look at verse 22. Because of you or for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Anybody know where else those words show up in the New Testament? Romans chapter eight one of the most hope-filled chapters in the entire Bible. It is, it is a chapter that is suffused both with pain and with hope in the unbreakable love of God. That nothing can separate you and it names the worst fears in all of life. And it says, not even these things can separate us. Here's how it, it goes in Romans 8. 
As it is written, Paul quotes our text, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Well, before, just before that text, the Apostle Paul is talking about how God did not spare his own son from the deepest darkness, and, and it's gesturing in the direction of rescue through the, the dying love of God in Christ, right? So this is where Psalm 44, it, it's doing more, not less, but it's doing more than giving you a script that you can pray in dark times. Psalm 44 is actually tipping its hat in the direction of the rescuer himself, the one who is coming. So there are patterns of words. You might not have noticed them at first, but I hope you notice them now. There are patterns of words in Psalm 44, descriptions of someone who, verse 11, was handed over. Someone who, verse 12, was sold for next to nothing. Someone who, verse 13, was made an object of reproach and a source of mockery. Someone in verse 15, whose shame covered his face. Verse 17, all this happened even though he had not forgotten God or betrayed the covenant. Verse 18, but this someone was crushed and covered in deepest darkness. Verse 22, he, this someone was put to death all day long, counted as a sheep to be slaughtered. Which tells us what? That the one who is praying the most heartbreaking realities in the book of Psalms is none other than the Savior himself, God himself, Emmanuel, God with us. Friends, the deepest mystery in the world is not that you and I experience Psalm 44-like trials and suffering. The deepest mystery in the world is that God himself stepped into Psalm 44. He made these words his own. So, so when your broken, weary soul cries out, You've got someone who gets it. That's why Hebrews is leveraging that. You don't have a, a high priest who doesn't understand. He gets it, bone deep. He is a sympathetic high priest. So run to him with your pain. Make it real, cry out, groan in his direction. And I love the last words of our Psalm, verse 26. Redeem us because of your faithful love, your hesed. It's the final cry of this psalm for redemption. And so we move from the creed of faith to the contradiction of faith and finally to the cry of faith. We have a language for every season of the soul. Ask yourself this question, what can faith say the morning after the battle was lost? Nobody's shocked, nobody in the world is shocked by the praise that we give to our God when the battle is won. Everybody understands that. Good circumstances, things going your way, of course, what else are you gonna do? Satan said to God almost in this, this, this bet, and he said, yeah, but watch what he does when I touch him. Let me touch him, and we'll see if his praise continues to be sung in your Direction. Let me take some stuff away, some of his favorite things, some of his dearest things on earth. Let me take some of that stuff and we'll see if he praises you then. What can faith say the morning after the battle was lost? Well, notice the freedom of the psalmist's cry. Wake up, why, and help. Wake up, verse 23. 
Wake up, Lord, why are you sleeping? Verse 24, why do you hide and forget our affliction and oppression? Verse 26, rise up and help us. So what's the takeaway for us? It's this, our faith clings, even if weakly, our our faith clings ultimately to God's faithfulness. Whether we feel it or not, our faith clings ultimately to God's faithfulness. Redeem us because of your hesed, because of your undying love, your steadfast love, your love that when it closes on us, it never lets us go. That's the love that I need right now in this darkest day. He's saying, I need hesed kind of love, love that clamps down and won't shake loose. It never lets me go. As as a child, uh, I remember uh, us visiting my nanny and Grandpa Harold. That was on my dad's side. And they lived in Shawnee, Oklahoma. And it was uh, the rest of our family, extended family, they were all there. And we had our our new uh, toy poodle. And... um, so we're from New Orleans, so we, were, we named her Trejolie, which is French for like very pretty, right? So Trejolie was with us. It's just a beautiful little uh, ball of white cloud. And, um, and we brought Trejolie to the house, walked inside, and there's Aunt Jo's pit bull, which not all pit bulls, let me just say, uh, I know some of you have pities. Pities can be wonderful animals. This, this particular pit bull uh, had major uh, anger management issues. And... And so here comes you know, Jolie running in the direction of Pitbull. I don't remember his name. She's running in his direction, just, you know, wagging her tail. And Pitbull just runs and just snatches Jolie up like this. And she squeals for everything in her. But uh, she was not harmed. She ended up okay. All right, so let me just put you to rest. Somebody came up after the first service and said, tell the people, like, what happened to Jolie? So uh, Jolie's okay. Um, so the, the dog, the pit bull, just grabs her up like that, and so Jolie just screams, and we all screamed, and Aunt Jo runs over, and she screams at the, her dog and says, get off of him, and the dog didn't let go, and, and so she grabs the pit bull, picks up pit bull, pit bulls also picks up Jolie. So they're all dangling in the air, Jolie's hanging from pit bull, pit bull's hanging from Aunt Jo, this kind of chain uh, that's unfolding there. Just pit bull would not let go, you just couldn't get it to, to let Jolie go. Well, I thought about that text even while I'm looking at this because his last statement is, redeem us with the love that won't let go, the love that holds us, and there's nothing that we can do to get out of its grip. It's the final cry of an afflicted believer is, I need that said thing. It's legendary. I need that said, that love that never lets us go. How can Psalm 44 end with questions and doubts. That's another reason I chose this one. It doesn't end upbeat. He never comes into the clearing. It stays dark all the way to the end. It's still saying, God, why didn't you show up? Why are you hiding? Why won't you wake up? It's saying that all the way to the end of the psalm. So how, here at the end of Psalm 44, can the afflicted believer have these doubts and questions and still have this as language of faith for us as believers? The answer to that is, that these are words of faith because one, Psalm 44 isn't the end of the book of Psalms. There's a Psalm 45 and there's a Psalm 46 and 47 and 48 and 135 and 136 and real darkness in 137, but then there's 138, right? In other words, the psalmist just keeps speaking even to the God who's not listening, but the psalmist won't shut 
up, you wonder, so do you believe that he hears or are you continuing to talk because you're convinced that he does? Do you think that he doesn't or are you actually convinced that he does hear? It's called monotheism, right? Monotheism means that there is one God and therefore there is no other place that you can go in the world except to the God you don't understand. Even when we don't understand him, he's the only one there. And so we run to him for refuge. It is mind-blowing to me that God permits his people to pray about his own perceived absence in our lives. Isn't that an amazing thing? You know, we could say to this psalmist, you know what, you need an editor. Before we hit publish, you need an editor. To which Psalm 44 says, I already have an editor. God is the editor of Psalm 44. In other words, God said, let's print it as is. Let's leave it exactly the way it stands. And several months ago, I, um, I encountered a poem that was written by a graduate student who was studying counseling and um, had taken a course on the lament psalms. And one of the projects was for them to write a lament psalm of their own. And she had an experience close to her life of a friend who was walking through the deepest darkness imaginable. And so she used the structures of lament psalms that she had learned all semester and told the story of her relationship with her close friend who walked through deep darkness. And she names her friend in the poem, December. And she names herself in the poem, July. And here's how the, the lament reads. God, my father, the creator of seasons, where were you at the birth of December? She came into the world so cold and alone with no blanket, with no home. From the moment she entered, her only home was winter and she had no coat. Did you notice you who have coats abundantly even for animals in the winter? I who was born in July, familiar only with green grass and bright sun, warm days, was not acquainted with the cold December winter. But it didn't take long to learn of her gloom and her chill and her long days of pale lighting and with much darkness. While you were far off, I sat near December, night after night. Did you remember? Did you see us there? I begged you to come down, but why didn't you listen? Why did you leave me, a vulnerable, wide-eyed July child, to fend for myself with December? My July joy became saddened and numb, just like December, now with December. Stooping, God, why didn't you stoop down and scoop us up sooner? I thought your arms were long enough, strong enough. That's why I asked you to take her, because my arms were too weak, my shoulders too narrow, my tears too few. I tried to be God for December because I thought you left but I could never be you for her, Lord, I confess. As you appeared to me in a dream, so continue in my awakening to be the one sitting in my place holding December's frame. Did you, great poet, write this narrative of harm? Lord, rewrite her script because I've tried, but I do not hold your pen. Write her story with a new name and teach us to read your handwriting that we may read it for her, to her, calling her by her rightful name, which only comes to blossom fully in you. 
I who was born in July have been changed by December. Creator of seasons, teach us anew your promise of better weather. And in the meantime, let us feel your warmth in winter on behalf of those with no blanket. We pray in the name of Jesus who was born of flesh into December that those dwelling there may begin to regain lost feeling, behold your brightness and be warmed by your presence which shall keep us in December warm enough but just barely. God gives us language for every season of the soul. I think of Psalm 44 as a a song for Holy Saturday. The day after Jesus was crucified, but the day before we have the luxury of knowing tomorrow's Easter. And if we're gonna have a song for every language of the soul, we need songs for Holy Saturday. We need songs for waiting believers. And what are these believers waiting for? They're waiting for help. They're waiting for God to stop hiding. And they're waiting for God to wake up. And that too is faith.